You know, it's a culture of ways of thinking and ways of checking your own thinking and other people's thinking that diminishes the likelihood that you will believe something that's false. In many ways, digital technology has made us smarter, or at least it's given us the potential to be smarter. Digital technology has also made it easier for us to be overwhelmed with conflicting and often deceptive information. We all need to be better, more critical thinkers. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jonathan Haber is an educational researcher, writer, and consultant whose current work spans K-12 through in higher education. He's also the author of the 50th title in the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series, Critical Thinking, which discusses everything from the impact of fake news to advice for educational leaders and policymakers. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Tell me about critical thinking. What do you mean by critical thinking? You know, this is a question that came up whenever I told people, particularly people in the sort of, of education business that I was writing this book. And that's because there are many different definitions of critical thinking that's been developed over the years by different researchers. And there's a sort of a perception that until we can come up with a consensus wording for a definition, we can't move forward with the critical thinking project in education or elsewhere. So, but I actually took a different approach in the book. I looked at the genealogy of the concept of critical thinking. Where did it originate, the notion that there's this form of thinking so unique, different from wisdom or intelligence that it could be called critical? And people perceive that as an ancient concept because it's informed by ancient fields like philosophy and science, as well as uh, more recent fields like psychology and, and most recently uh, neuroscience. Uh, but critical thinking actually has an origin point. You could trace it back to 1910 in a book written by John Dewey, probably one of the most influential intellectuals of the 20th century, especially in education, a book called How We Think, where he defined reflective thinking, which eventually morphed into critical thinking. And really, and all definitions of critical thinking since then have really been in dialogue with, with Dewey's concept. But all those definitions can be distilled down really to a three-part model, a combination of knowledge, skills, and dispositions that taken together are the critical thinker's toolkit. And I think if, as long as we sort of, of embrace that sort of model as not a consensus wording, but a consensus understanding, then the critical thinking project can go forward. Well, what is the, the critical thinking project? Well, I think the critical thinking project is changing the way we teach, changing how students are educated, but also the way we work as individuals, how we think about the things that are most important to us. Dewey, as I mentioned, was a uh, educator, is also a philosopher, but he was in a tradition of philosophy, an American branch of philosophy called pragmatism that originated with another philosopher called Charles Sanders Peirce, who identified sort of different ways we think unproductively. For instance, we can think by simply believing what we already believe. Um, that's called a priori thinking. We can make decisions or believe things by authority, right? We just believe what we're told. Or we could defy authority and believe the opposite of what we're told just out of sort of tenacity. And all those have their place. I mean, I'm a parent, so I think there's, there's a role for authority, for example, on occasion. But those are not necessarily good ways to getting towards the truth. If you want to get to the truth, then you need to think more systematically, more rigorously, more critically. And that's really the critical thinking project. How do we change the educational system? 
How do we change the culture? How do we change ourselves so that we are thinking for ourselves? And what are the tools we need to do so? So why is it important for people to become critical thinkers? Well, you know, given the time we're living through where you have competing information and competing interpretations of that information that have life and death consequences, I think the need to be able to think independently and critically rather than, as I said, just believe what we're told or believe what we've always believed is now more crucial than ever, right? Our lives may depend on it. You know, why is it a better way of thinking? Well, you know, I, I often use science as a model, right? People sort of, of look to science, which has achieved great things, obviously, in the last several hundred years. Um, you know, people think of it as a method, but it's really a culture. You know, it's a culture of ways of thinking and ways of checking your own thinking and other people's thinking that diminishes the likelihood that you will believe something that's false, right? We all believe false things, including scientists, but the scientific culture, the sort of mode of science, the uh, kind of scientific attitude, as a philosophy friend calls it, that allows us to diminish this bias, not completely, doesn't eliminate it, but diminishes it just enough to give us all the things that science and technology has given us over the last several centuries. So if we could do that in our lives, if we could sort of diminish the things that get us to believe false things or make bad decisions, you know, even just a little bit that can make everybody's lives better. Now, journalists, I mean, this is a podcast about about journalism, not necessarily about philosophy and not necessarily about thinking, but journalists are, are kind of charged with this idea that they're supposed to question everything. They're supposed to be skeptical and in the process of pursuing the truth and, and reporting facts. So one would think that, that you know, we're, we're a, a career where critical thinking is very important. What are your thoughts on that? I think critical thinking is vital for a journalist. And, and you know, like kind of many teachers, many people in other professions, kind of, of skilled journalists have internalized some principles of critical thinking, but they've not done so systematically. You know, and a great example of where that comes out is in the concept of, you just mentioned facts, right? You know, facts are the lifeblood of journalism. Facts are terrific. Facts are important. You know, I'm a big fan of fact-checking sites, but facts are not enough. You know, there was um, a, let me bring up another philosopher, but there was a philosopher writing about uh, fact-checking, uh, which was a journalistic practice, and pointing out that, you know, facts as important as they are, they are just the prem they serve as the premises in something else, that something else is an argument. And there's something linking those facts, the premises, that evidence to a conclusion. And I would say most journalists don't know enough about sort of systems of logic to understand what those connections are. Let, let me give you an example of where this sort of would play out in a journalistic setting. You know, if there was an editorial, and I'm sure there is somewhere out there today that uh, somebody is claiming, you know, look, we've been social distancing for a month, you know, I'm going crazy, and the death toll is still going up with coronavirus, so clearly social distancing is not working, right? That is not a, a fact, per se, that's an argument that contains facts. And if you sort of distill it down to sort of unambiguous statements, as sort of critical thinking techniques will teach you to do, you realize it's a two-premise argument, right? One premise says we've been social distancing for a month. Another premise is saying the death toll has been going up. 
uh, in the last month. And the conclusion is social distancing is not working. Now, if you look at that from a fact-checking perspective, right, the facts check out, right? Those two premises, we have been social distancing for a month. That's a true fact. And the death toll has gone up. That's a true fact. So fact-checking would be able to confirm that the facts are right. But if you look at the conclusion that social distancing isn't working, well, that's clearly false, right? Well, why is it false? It's not false because the facts are wrong. It's false because there is uh, the facts, the evidence does not provide enough reasons to believe the conclusion. And reasons for belief are a real thing. They're as real as any facts. In this particular case, right, nobody promised us that social, social distancing would work immediately. We all were told it would take time. So it's very easy to accept the premises because they're true facts but reject the conclusion. And that's not because any fact is false. It's because the argument in this case is called invalid. It's a weak argument because it's not a valid argument. So I think, you know, journalists might instinctively kind of get why that particular instance, the conclusion's false, but they have no language to describe why it's false. They don't understand these relatively simple concepts of, of argumentation, validity, premises, conclusion. And I think that if they did, they would be more in a position to analyze the news, not just from the perspective of fact-checking, which I think, as I just illustrated, can only get you so far, but also logic-checking. You know, I've actually created a site in which I, I perform this task. It's based on fact-checking sites. It's called logiccheck.net, and it, it does this activity. It sort of looks at the news of the day, but rather than just checking the premises, it also checks the logic behind the news. You said a lot of really interesting things there. For some reason, that way back in the in the corners of my mind, I, I was thrown back to elementary school and science class and trying to understand theorems. That you know, what's your idea? What is it? Your conclusion is wrong because your your theorem is incorrect. The, the question you asked, you know, you didn't understand your question. You didn't ask it correctly. The evidence that you gathered to support it was not did not directly you know, relate to it or, or in the end, it all didn't add up. And so it was a matter of trying to figure out <laughs> which end of the, um, which end of the banana I was holding, I guess. I don't know. But we've talked quite a lot on the podcast about things about fake news, about fact checking, about trust in media. I mean, that's an issue that I think every journalist is worth their salt is, is something they think about a lot especially in the the sort of polarized environment that we are in now where you know not only are facts being questioned but our processes for for how we do our jobs are being questioned you know i'm a journalist i'm not looking to misinform people i'm not looking to spread false information i'm just trying to figure out you know how to tell the story that's important to tell and to gather the facts that are going to help support that what's a good working strategy for me going out in the world? The fact-checking ideas, there's, you know, that is an incredibly valuable activity. You know, there's nothing wasted in that effort. As long as we realize that facts are one part of the communication that makes up the news, right? If you if you read an editorial, if you listen to a campaign speech or a presidential press conference, right, there's a lot of facts there and those can be checked. But those facts are being marshaled into arguments. That's really what we're analyzing. And we need to be in a position to check the facts, but also sort of check the reasoning. And one of the reasons this is important is that in many cases, 
no amount of fact-checking is going to kind of tell us, quote unquote, the answer, right? Because we're in a presidential campaign season. You hardly notice now, but we are, you know, and many of the things we're going to be debating are policies that people are claiming will improve things in the future. Well, we're not going to know what happens in the future until it happens, right? So we have to analyze arguments for this policy or that policy based on an unknown, right? We were not going to be able to confirm things until after the vote's been taken and a policy's been implemented. But we can evaluate the strength of the argument, right? We can analyze how likely it is that the conclusion that a policy will be successful or will fail will take place. So for all these reasons, we need to sort of, of structure our thinking so we don't fall in the trap of thinking, well, you know, there's facts and anything that's not a fact is an opinion or just an opinion, right? We can read an editorial and we can make a factual statement about whether that editorial is making a strong or a weak argument, right? We can listen to a presidential news conference and we can determine not just which facts are true or false, but we can determine, you know, how strong the argument is being made. So I would say I was just listening to another podcast about uh, journalistic object objectivity and and um, on your site and it was a fascinating argument. So, but I would say this also falls into this notion that sort of objectivity is all about the facts and triple checking and triple sourcing the facts and you know all that is vital. But you also have to be able to see the structures that those facts fit into. Those structures are called arguments. Those arguments have strengths and weaknesses. They have persuasive power. You know, journalism is about language. And so how do we use the journalist's skill to take complex human language, distill it into statements that are clear and unambiguous? That's what journalism is supposed to do. But then also, you know, use that understanding to determine is the argument strong or weak, right? If, if if I tell you I had a cold winter, so global warming is false. If I had a cold winter, a fact checker can only say, okay, well, you know, that fact is true. A, a, but a logic checker would be able to say, you know, well, the fact may be true, but that, surprise, that supplies insufficient reasons to believe the conclusion that global warming is false. So it's a question of sufficiency. Now, that's a simple example, but when we're dealing with more complex arguments like those that take place in the campaign trail, we need to be able to like formally do this exercise or we're going to lose the thread. One of the things on this podcast has been when we've been looking at fact checking, you know, a lot of this, this talk and discussion began around, you know, after the 2016 election. And, you know, we had a president who was a little playing a little fast and loose with the truth. And so you had fact checkers, pop up all over the place and you have the, like the Washington Post, for example, I think the number of lies that the president has told is over 12,000. And when you get to that number, it's kind of like it reveals the weakness of fact checking. What we do is we confirm facts. And if we start amassing a pile of facts, then that will convince people. But, you know, if, if you've got 12,000 facts and you're really not changing anybody's mind, then that pile of facts is insufficient for you to accomplish what your goal was. So then you need to look for other things. And I think, you know, you, you've talked about some of them about looking for the reasons behind the way things are being presented. And you get into a larger conversation about, you know, why people are, are sharing disinformation. Then you, you get into this sort of realm where you're sort of dealing more with 
the argument as it is really sort of going on, I'm thinking you reference a philosopher who is pragmatic. I think it's sort of a pragmatic way of looking at things because if you end up looking at everything as sort of black and white and not understand the other forces that are sort of being being played, you're going to be missing out on what's going on in, in very loose terms. I was reading a, a very fascinating kind of history of fact-checking and, you know, it, it it's... You know, it goes back actually into the sort of 19th century, but modern fact-checking really goes way, you know, before 2016, right? I, I was writing about the 2012 election, using that as a case study to teach critical thinking skills, and kind of modern fact-checking really came into its own during that election, you know, and, and it consists of all the things we see, professional journalists sort of screening the facts, doing a good job, doing the shoe leather work, you know, but I think there's a sort of general kind of understanding. Well, we've been been doing this for well over a decade, you know, probably close to two since organizations like Fact Check and Political Fact came on board and they're doing, you know, sort of yeoman's work and it's really valuable, but it hasn't changed the discourse. The last election, we seem to be getting away with people saying kind of more untrue things. So, you know, now one could say it's, you know, sort of modern technology, it's changes in sort of media sources, it's the availability of news sources that kind of don't have the same professional ethos. And, and all that's true. But I would say that's also been missing a key point as we've sort of assumed, if we could just get the facts right, you know, if we could just get the sort of data correct and correctly checked, then then everything will be okay, right? You know, our, our job is to sort of confirm the facts. And you, you mentioned your sort of science experiments when you were a kid, right? Well, you know, science is a very certain way of reasoning. There's facts, right? There's evidence, but it's got to fit into a scientific argument, you know, a theory that will uh, ask questions and then your facts are marshaled to prove or disprove, you know, answer to, to answer that question right or wrong. So, you know, same thing is true in our common discourse, in our journalistic discourse, right? When we, when most of us listen to a campaign speech, we certainly are tuned to when someone is telling something that might be true or false. But, you know, very often the facts are largely true, but the conclusions don't convince us. Okay. Or the facts are, you know, kind of questionable, but we do believe the conclusions. Now, why is that? Well, maybe it's because the arguments that these facts have been fit into are, are well-constructed, you know, they are convincing. Maybe they're well-presented, that they're compelling. Or maybe it's, you know, our biases will cause us to want to believe one person, regardless of how accurate, you know, what he's saying is, and will want us to disbelieve something that somebody else says who we don't like as much, right? So that's another aspect of sort of critical thinking is it's a, it's a means of controlling you know, our biases and those biases are really the sort of the great enemy of critical thinking in a way, kind of structuring ourselves to think systematically is very much a way to control, you know, all the biases that are pushing us to think poorly. Is it even possible for us to get beyond our biases in our, in our public discourse? I think the important thing is to realize that one does not eliminate bias, right? We, we're we not going to turn ourselves into planet Vulcan where all decisions are made, you know, purely logical. We are, you know, we are emotional beings. We're sort of tribal beings. And that's actually not necessarily a bad thing, right? I like to use the example of parenting, right? When, when my kids were small, you know, I didn't wire them up to, you know, sort of EKGs to determine what their mood was. I, I just 
because of my love for them, my emotional bond for them. I, I knew when they were hungry. I knew when they were happy. I knew when they were sad. So that emotional connection provided me valuable data that became the premises in my sort of decision-making on what I would do next. Now, what I did with that data was more logical, right? It had to become more Spock-like when I was making decisions. That's an example where emotion is actually useful because we derive a lot of our understanding of other people through our emotion and the good emotions, you know, caring, love, sympathy, empathy, understanding. Those are valuable sources of data, just as hate, anger, distrust, those are sources of distortion. You know, they can, they can feed us bad data. You know, similarly, like, Tribalism is sort of a bad thing, but trust is a good thing, you know, and these are about our connections with other people. I had an interesting um, discussion with a journalist friend who she and a bunch of her friends had all filled out one of those surveys that asked you, you know, what do you believe on these issues? And then it spit out the person you should vote for in the Democratic primary. Well, absolutely nobody was given the candidate they planned to vote on. You know, so the question was, was everybody behaving irrationally? And I made the case that actually no, right? Because there's more than the sort of logical connection and common beliefs and the issues that drive your decision making. There's trust. Do you trust this candidate? Do you trust him to do the things that you both agree on? You know, do you trust him to win the election? That's important. Now, those neither of those are cognitive activities, but sort of those are areas where emotion and sort of instinct can provide uh, information. So, so for starters, you know, we need to understand we don't eliminate our biases because they're hardwired into our brain, but we can control for them. We can identify them and control for them. So in our case, if you have always voted for a particular political party, that probably means you're likely to filter your information differently based on whether it's coming from somebody in the party you've agreed with all your life or not. You know, the same way other forms of identity, like, you know, religious beliefs or strong personal beliefs are going to filter. So, so first of all, you just have to understand that that's going to create a filter on your understanding of, of the information you're receiving and not sort of ignore it and become completely neutral, but identify it and control for it, right? I think there were a couple of cases in Logic Check where I showed how a biased argument can be useful, right? I found a, a argument from a conservative news source about how Bernie Sanders' political campaign strategy was going to be a failure, right? I, I wrote something recently about there was a biased source arguing why President Trump's press conferences shouldn't be covered on the news, right? In the, both those cases, I was able to identify them as kind of partisan sources, but it didn't mean the argument they provided weren't good. I just had to make sure I sort of understood where they came from and also understood where I was coming from in order to sort of interpret them. And lo and behold, there was some in interesting things to be said in both arguments, even for those who disagreed with the source. Jonathan, this phrase that we hear a lot, you know, that we're in a post-truth world, you know, what are your thoughts about that? I've got a good friend, Lee McIntyre, who actually wrote another book in the same series that uh, my critical thinking book is in, the essential series on post-truth. And we, we talk about it quite a bit. I mean, I think the phrase certainly implies that there was a period beforehand where truth reigned supreme, which I think is not accurate, right? There's always been the challenge of discovering the truth in an environment where 
people either are ignorant or trying to deceive one another. I think where we are now is an era when the ability to deceive or the difficulty of getting at the truth has been augmented by just the sheer complexity of the world and the wide range of information available to us. I think uh, in an earlier journalistic age, with whatever shortcomings it may have had, you had journalists who adhered to certain kind of rules or norms. Work was certainly more supervised in that you just couldn't publish anything you wanted, you know, sort of sight unseen. And of course, now we've democratized journalism, which in many ways is a good thing, particularly in areas like local news, where as resources have diminished for kind of official local news, you've got citizen journalists stepping in, but also means any nut with a grudge can publish anything they like, and it could be on par with major news broadcasters, regardless of how well-researched or true or even sane it might be. So I would say we are in a unique time where we as individuals have to sort through more information coming at us, more information about more complicated things that have varying viewpoints, some of which are being delivered to us uh, in order to kind of convince us or in some cases deceive us. So I think, you know, when Lee, my friend and I have actually kind of been on panels talking about this, he's depicted sort of the post-truth phenomena. And then I followed up by talking about critical thinking as a cure for post-truth. I think all the things we've been talking about, all the skills that sort of fall into the category of critical thinking, all the aspects of critical thinking outlined in the book. These are the tools that we as individuals need to be able to sort through a new information landscape, which in many ways is wonderful, right? We all carry, you know, a million libraries of Alexandria around with our pocket, but they require us, you know, at ground level to do the heavy lifting with that information if we want to sort of live in a world where it's not a sort of post-truth era, it's an era where each of us is sort of committed to at least being on the pathway to getting to the truth. I feel a little heartened by this in the sense that it really comes down to the individual then to educate themselves, to make the effort to determine if something they're reading is incorrect or, or is trying to be deceptive. Is put more of the onus on you than rather on, well, I trust this, you know, I trust Walter Cronkite, you know, I'm going to get, he's going to tell me what the truth is. I don't, I don't have to question too much what, what he has to say. I don't think he's deceiving me, but now we need to be critical thinkers. I mean, I, I guess that's what this, this, this whole conversation is about. We have to be better at critical thinkers in dealing with the information that's out there. Yeah. Fundamentally, it just, the message is it's up to us, right? The political leaders who got into power kind of riding whatever sort of difficult era we're in right now for ascertaining the truth. Okay, they're not going to change things because, you know, they got into power by taking advantage of phenomena that we've been talking about. And similarly, I think, you know, it's it's fool's sort of choice to decide that, you know, Google or Facebook or some of the people who built the tools and platforms that information, good and bad, is being disseminated is going to solve this for us. I mean, it's not a small lift for we as individuals to kind of develop the skills and the instincts to do this well, you know, but I think it really ultimately is the only solution. Yeah. And I think back to, if, you know, a few years ago, the all of the talk about social media around the Arab Spring, and there were a lot of people who saw that as really kind of 
a hopeful moment. It's like, oh, we have we suddenly have, you know we've democratized this communication system. People are able to report in real time these things that are going on. Little realizing that those same tools can then also be used against people to disseminate false information. We both lived through this era of you know when when the internet and then social media first came online, we were sort of celebratory of them, right? They seemed like sort of utopian means of connection. And and they still can be, but I think we also very gradually understood that, you know, these can be tools can be used to drive wedges between people or push people to kind of follow their worst instincts or take advantage of chinks in our mental armor. So, you know, critical thinking is not sort of natural. If it were, there would probably be no term for it. You know, it's like scientific thinking. It's something that, you know, norms evolve over time and it takes a great deal of effort in order to do it versus thinking in ways that are more natural, you know, believing what you're told, believing things that you already kind of believe in, right? Confirmation bias. These are not natural, but there's a clear pathway to being able to think better. And and I don't want to leave listeners with the notion that, you know, the only way to solve our problems is for all of us to be, you know, exercising our logical reasoning 100% of the time, right? I think there's periods when this is particularly useful in kind of discourse and disputation, particularly over important events in kind of of trying to evaluate our choices when we're making decisions, particularly about policy matters. So these are all places where the critical thinking tool set can and should be used much more than it is now. And again, we should not simply rely on the fact that everybody can communicate with everybody else as sort of intrinsically going to bring out the best in us, since we've seen it bring out the good and bad over the last decade. Yeah. I think you've given us a lot of things to think about, about critical thinking. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Michael. I really enjoyed being here. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.